It is good to be here. Uh, the last several weeks, I know many of you have been praying for me. I have had a bit of a back problem. Others would just call it old age. Um, but I have uh, been on the mend, and I am very much grateful to be here. Uh, I would say that uh, I have learned a lot over the last several weeks and grateful for the experience. Don't want to go through it again, but uh, very grateful and have a deeper uh, understanding and sympathy for uh, anyone who has experienced that kind of pain before. Uh, but thank you for praying for me. Thank you for your encouragement. Uh, I was encouraged the entire time through it. Uh, and this morning, I am probably a bit rusty. It's been a little while since I've been up here. And um, in fact, I missed church service, church gathering for three weeks in a row. Now, I know that might seem to some of you like, mm, it's three weeks. Others, you might go, wow, three weeks. That is probably the most consecutive church services I've missed since I was maybe four or something like that. So it, it is a bit out of the norm for me and um, not quite my experience. In fact, Kevin even asked me this week if I was still a Christian. <laughs> so we, we did get that sorted out and uh, I was granted permission to get up here again. So, um, but it is uh, definitely, uh, definitely good to be back. Before uh, I jump into the text, um, there's a friend of mine, Daniel, who uh, it is his last Sunday, I believe, with us. Daniel, for those of you that don't know him, he's been a committed member in this community for a long time, uh, was a part of this community while at Whitworth and went off to grad school and came back and then committed while serving on L'Arche and has invested in small group and in people's lives here. Uh, and when someone is leaving our midst and moving on to another stage of life, he is about to get married to Tatiana, and uh, they're about to move to California, and I thought it would be great for us just to pray over him and uh, bless them as they start a life together. So if you would with me, just extend out your hand in uh, a form of blessing to them, and I just want to pray over them as a couple as they embark in this new journey. God, we are grateful uh, for Daniel and for Tatiana, grateful for uh, their investment in this community, uh, their love for people, uh, their desire to be a part of what you're doing in our midst. And God, we just ask that as they transition to California, as they start a life together as partners, that they might invest deeply in another church community, that they might love people, that they might serve, that they might be an extension of the kingdom of God in that place. And so God, may the grace of Christ attend them, the love of God surround them, and the Holy Spirit keep them as they live in faith and grow in love both now and forevermore. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> uh, as you know, we are at the midpoint in the series on the letters to the church out of the book of Revelation. And a couple of weeks ago, Joseph mentioned the central focus of our time in the letters is all about the person of Jesus. In fact, he said this a few weeks ago. So this entire book, this entire testimony, this entire prophecy is centered on Jesus. It's centered on the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the love of Jesus, 
the power of Jesus and what it looks like for the people of Jesus to walk in the way of Jesus. If you don't get it, the whole book is a revelation of Jesus. And as we move through these letters, you're going to see more and more that the letters are pointing to who Jesus is. Uh, Our hope, as you know, during this winter is just to look at the letters. Hopefully, our goal will be a little bit later on, post-COVID, if there is such a thing, uh, to look at the rest of Revelation and uh, consider some of the themes and ideas around that part of the revelation of Jesus. A couple weeks ago, Kevin mentioned another important piece to this series, and that is the idea of structure. So each of these seven letters follows the exact same structure. Uh, The first part, they start off with a greeting. It's a chance to communicate a reference to the city or to who it's written to. Uh, It's followed by a description of the risen Christ. So all of that flows out of Revelation 1. So this Revelation 1 describes who Jesus is, and then each of the letters circles back to that description of his lordship. Then John gives a word of praise to each of the local churches, So, with the exception of Laodicea. So all of them are praised in a unique way. Uh, They're commended for their identification or certain things about who they are uh, or how they embody the call of Jesus within the kingdom of God. Then, following the section of praise, there is a section of, for lack of a better term, criticism. Uh, Here is where you're following short. And every church is told areas in which they're failing, except for uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And then lastly comes a warning or an exhortation that usually starts off with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, and then describes something and kind of finishes with a promise. So if you're noticing anything about the text so far, what you should be noticing is the number seven. Now seven comes up 24 times in the book of Revelation, and what we're looking at are seven letters to seven churches with seven sections in each letter. So there should be a bit of like repetitive nature to this idea, which also should help you to know that there is a lot more going on in this text other than the literal reading of the text, all right? So, which brings us to another little point before we get to our letter today, and that is the necessity of interpretation, So before we go any further, I think it's important for us to recognize that interpretation to this specific section of Scripture is highly important because you will not get what the main points are unless you understand how this letter or this particular part of the letter was written. Now there's a decent amount of debate when it comes to who the seven churches are. Is it written to literal seven churches during that specific time? Was it written for us? Was it written to describe seven epochs of the church history, which I think to be a bit doubtful? The point really is that seven is the number of completeness, and uh, many would suggest that the letters represent the embodiment of the churches throughout time. So you can think of them as both localized communities, none of which still exist today in the world. None of these churches that received the letter are still around. But it was written to both local, but really was written 
to this embodiment of the church throughout time. And part of why I come to that particular conclusion is because I believe this section of Scripture is written with a chiastic structure. Now, for those of you that have not been around New Community too long, uh, you will not be as familiar with this. But throughout the time that I've been teaching here, we talk a lot about uh, the chiastic structure of certain passages in both the Old and New Testament. And so really what I mean by that, it's a pattern of writing in which the author is able to highlight certain points within the text that are of greater importance than other parts of the text. It's also a way of writing which kind of leads the reader to a focal point and then away from the focal point. So you get to repeat yourself several times and you get to build momentum toward a central point. Uh, the best way to kind of describe it is this picture. So what John is doing with this structure is each one of those letters represents a church, and those churches mirror one another all the way to the central church. It's his way of creating and highlighting the most salient points. Typically, when you use chiastic structure, the central point is the most important one, and then the central verse of the central idea is the most important of all the verses in the entire section. We'll get to that in a moment. Also, typically, the two A's are very, very important in this as well. So I'll give you just a quick snapshot. Churches 1 and 7 are the two that are in the most grave danger in terms of what is communicated to them, with the seventh one being the one that's in the worst shape, Laodicea. The two B's in the middle, churches 2 and 6, are the ones that are in excellent shape. Everything he says is like, you're doing a great job, no criticism. And then the three in the middle are kind of both good and bad, not so great, with the central one being the one we're looking at today, which is the focus of all of them, which kind of highlights also this issue with Laodicea, which is lukewarm, kind of laissez-faire approach tolerance, a unwillingness to actually pursue God. And then also central to that idea is um, a topic we will talk about a little bit this morning, which is idolatry. So all of that is highlighted by that structure, and I obviously just skimmed over that. We could do a really long amount of time on that. But uh, this morning, Thyatira is the church we are looking at. And it is the central church in this entire um, structure. So what I want to do is just walk our way through the passage and see if there might be a few things that are highlighted in the text that will be relatable to the way in which we live. So, in the letter to Tyatara, this is to the messenger of the assembly. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire and whose feet are like bronze, that has been glowing in a furnace. Now, I want to highlight three things about this description of who Jesus is in this text. First, Jesus is described as the Son of God. Now, this is important because throughout all of the book of Revelation, he is only referred to as the Son of Man, except for this one time in which he's referred to as the Son of God. Some of you might think to yourself, no big deal. Why does that even matter? It matters because 
throughout the entire book, what the author is trying to highlight is the importance of the humanity of Jesus, who's both present and with us. What this particular church is highlighting in the center of all of the churches is that the God who rules and reigns in the world is first and foremost a deity. He's other than us. He's separate. He has authority. He has power. He has significance, right? So the central church needed to focus not so much on his humanity, but on his deity. It also was a way of the author John writing kind of in code to communicate that the emperor isn't anything because there is a king named God, right? So it's a direct statement to the empire, to the authorities at the time. It's a criticism or a critique to the power structures of the world, okay? So all of that is going on at the same time. And as you know, this uh, text has a lot of complexity to it. Second idea is Jesus has eyes like flames of fire. And really, this is symbolizing his power, the power of his vision. The big idea behind it is that we know he searches into each of us specifically. He knows our thoughts, our attitudes, our intentions, our motives, our desires, everything about who we are. He is keenly aware it's as if his eyes like cut right through you to the soul of who you are and understand what's going on. Even though you may feel as if you're kind of like skating by, hiding it, making people unaware of what's really going on. Maybe none of you are like that, but I think there are times where we kind of try to fake our way through the world and pretend as if everything's fine and then what you really need is someone that comes up and knows you enough to go, how, how are you really doing? And then at that point, you're like, oh, I didn't want you to ask. But, and then you kind of, that's what's happening here. That Jesus is looking through and kind of penetrating into their life in a unique way. And then the last part, that Jesus has feet like bronze. Now, this is a description that there's a little bit of debate about. Some suggest that the bronze indicates that he has strength for executing judgment. I would kind of disagree with that particular perspective because I think the clue is found in the city itself. It was a city that had a bronze guild, and it was a city that worshipped a god who was the god of bronze. So I think it's more of a statement of God saying, if you have a god of bronze, I'm the better god of bronze. I'm the one that you need to actually be pointing to. And I'm the one whose eyes can melt you. I'm the one who's in control of the whole situation. So I think it's more of a statement to say, hey, I'm specifically writing to you and using illustrations that will make sense to you. I think that's the point. He then moves into commending or... Um, Letting them know, here are some things I have to say that are really great about this church. He says this, I know your actions or your deeds, your love and faith, your ministry and endurance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. It's a pretty amazing statement. So if I, if I could just pause here for a moment. If the angel to the church was to say to new community something, this would be a statement I would love for the, to hear, right? I would love to hear it. He's commending them about four things, that they were progressing of love, that they had loyal faith, 
that they were laboring or serving, and that they were long-suffering or had great endurance. And not only are those four qualities amazing, what he is saying on top of that is that whatever you were doing before, you're doing even more now. So however good it was, it's only getting better, which is an incredible statement. So he's describing the church, and he's saying, this is what you look like. You're progressing, you're growing, you're walking in faith. And he highlights or praises them for their love. And I think the reason that that is so important, this is the only one of the seven churches that was praised for its love. A lot of the others, Kevin even spoke to one, that they've lost their first love. But in this particular one, they're saying, of all of the qualities... Love is one in which you are growing even more so now than ever before. That's an incredible statement. If it was to end there, I'd be like, man, that is awesome. We arrived. We've made it. But there's a bit of a critique. The critique goes like this. But I certainly have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she leads my servants into idolatry and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to change her mind, but she is not willing to change her mind from her idol worshiping. Indeed, I will make her take to her bed, and I will make those who commit adultery with her be pressured greatly unless they change their minds about her idol worshiping. And I will strike her offspring well and truly dead." And everyone will realize that I am, I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will give to each of you what's coming to you for your actions. Now, that's a strong word, okay? So I'm going to break it down and do three things. The first is this idea of sin, okay? By her teaching, she leads my servants into idolatry. Now, the language that it's using here in this text is adultery language, sexual strain, like you're in a covenant relationship or you're in a marriage, and now you're straying from that. You're involved in adultery, or in this case, idolatry, same thing. Now, what you need to understand is that the book of Revelation is metaphorical and symbolic, and this is not an exception to that rule. There is a lot of the text that is described in this way. So I can clearly say this, that some may argue that it is a literal adultery with a literal woman named Jezebel, but I think that's literally the wrong interpretation, okay? There is not a literal woman Jezebel, and if there was, it may have been a person they're referring to, but it's more of an idea or a symbol of being led astray, and the Old Testament person of Jezebel is being referenced or highlighted. I also don't think it was literal adultery with that figurative person. It's more or less like the things you're doing in terms of idolatry are leading you away from who God is, and that is an adulterous decision to make because you're no longer marrying me and faithful to me, okay? Um, And so for lack of better language, what he's describing them as is playing the whore, that you are in a false relationship and no longer in a deep relationship with me. 
And what he's really speaking to is this idea of adultery and idolatry, that we worship someone other than God. And I would venture to say that this is a concept that is difficult for us in our current context to understand, because I think if almost any of us in this room or even in this country was to be asked the question, do you worship false gods? Do you bow down and worship others other than God? I think most of us would be like, no, haven't done that. I got no wooden carved images. I have not, you know, I'm all about the Ten Commandments. Nope, haven't done it. And yet, I think the truth is it applies to us very much so. Um, In fact, I would suggest that over these last several years, uh, there probably have been more and more examples of what it means to be someone that gives in to idolatry than perhaps ever before. Now, certainly you have your standard sex, money, power, okay? Not talking about those. Those can all become idols in our life, and we know that. We've probably heard that before. I think there have been a list of other things that we have begun to worship or that have begun to have control over who we are. I'm not going to go into great depth in each of these, but I'm going to highlight a few that I think hopefully speak to who we are and maybe could challenge us individually. I think one of those things that has probably become an idol for some in our country is the idea of politics. Politics has become a lens through which we look at the world. It has colored who's on our side and who's not, who I should be in a fight with and who I shouldn't be. It's colored the way I look at culture and customs and social responsibility. It's colored so much. It has been divisive. It shifts our perspective. It has ruined joy for so many people. Right? I mean, the list could go on and on. If those are feelings you've had, experiences you've endured, that is an example of us starting to shift our focus from a central focus on who God is and what it means to follow Yahweh to being about a God that's different. Meaning, controlled focus, attention diverted from central things. Okay? Another would be safety and security. For many of us, this season has come with a lot of challenge, with a lot of natural difficulty. There is inherent normal levels of anxiety for all of that. We're not discounting any of that. But for some within our community, within our city, within the world, security, safety, has become the God that is over and above every other decision that's made. These are examples of us shifting from a central perspective of worshiping Yahweh to a attention to things other than. Another would be social causes. I think social causes are very, very important. And obviously our community wants to highlight things that are of deep importance to us. And yet sometimes what I've noticed in our culture and world is that the cause becomes the God we serve more than the people we serve, more than the thing we're even trying to accomplish, right? Another would be tribalism. Who's in and who's out? Some of us have oriented our whole world, our whole philosophy 
on whether I'm in and somebody else is out and who are the people that are out and who are the people that are in and are they with me or are they against me? That's a whole nother God. It is a God that we don't and should not serve. And it is getting in the way of us actually serving the God that we do serve. We could get into other things like uh, an apathy or a convenience centered around what it means to worship God. That I only give God a portion of what I want, not the central things of what I want, right? I mean, the list could go on and on. The point being that idolatry is not something that was like a revelation problem back in the day to a church we can't even pronounce. It's a us problem. It's a today problem. It's a 2022 and going beyond problem, right? And this is a warning for a church that is doing incredibly well in so many things the text is describing to say, hey, but the central thing might be the thing you're missing out on the most. Which leads to the second part. That's the sin. The second part is the consequences. The text reads this way, indeed I will make her take to her bed or in other versions there will be a sickness and I will make those who commit adultery with her, again figuratively, be pressured greatly until they change their minds about her idol worshiping and I will strike her offspring well and truly dead. So again, let me say that this also is symbolic, okay? What it's not saying is that Jesus is going to kill all of the babies that Jezebel has, okay? That's not what it's communicating. What it's communicating is that the way of idolatry leads to sickness, okay? The way of idolatry, all the things we just described, if you lead your life with those things as the center thing, it will lead to a sickness. It will lead to a lack of joy. It will lead to anxiety. It will lead to a lack of peace. It will lead to all kinds of things that are the least of what you should be pursuing. And then what the text is describing when it says that the offspring will be well and truly dead, that which is produced from a life of idolatry will end in death. Right? That which is the offspring of a frame of perspective that is not healthy and is not centered on Yahweh will ultimately lead to death. Those are the consequences of actions. It's not that God is riding down on a chariot and is going to smite all of the offspring of Jezebel. That's not what it's trying to communicate, in my opinion. What it's trying to communicate is that this way of life, and it's also trying to like give allusion to Psalm 2, is a way that will lead us away from who God is and will result in consequences that are natural and not life-giving. Okay? Which leads us to the central verse of the whole section. So I said, if you have the structure that leads to the central church, then the central church, there's seven churches, seventh church, the center, seven ideas. The central idea of all of those, I know it's a lot, is this. And everyone will realize that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will give each of you what's coming to you for your actions. Again, not intended as a threat statement, more intended as a statement to say that God deeply cares for the very actions that you and I take, so much so that the very actions we take are at the center of the entire section. So if you were to say, what is the one thing that the whole seven churches are supposed to recognize 
they're supposed to recognize that the way to live out your faith is in your deeds and actions every day, and that matters for the kingdom of God. We have bought into the idea at times within our culture that what I do on the day-to-day doesn't matter. What matters is what I believe. If I said the prayer, great, all good, don't need to read the rest of Revelation, okay? Or if I believe certain things theologically, it doesn't matter that I'm a jerk to somebody on the street or that I don't care about or I did this thing. No. The point being that the only way you live faith is for it to be expressed in action. The rest is just us playing around, pretending. Oh, I'm a person of deep faith. Great, show me. Well, I'm a person of deep faith. Yes, it's called the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's lived out. Patience, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness. Those are all actions that are lived out, expressed, embodied. That's what the text is getting at. So of all the things, your actions matter, and they matter because of kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The opposite of that is idolatry. That's what the text is saying. Which leads us to the last part, which are the promises. It says this, um, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who don't adhere to her teaching, who have not realized the so-called deep things of adversary, that I will put, not put any other burden on you except that you must hold on to what you have until I come. And to the one who conquers and does my work until the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron rod. They will be smashed to pieces like pottery. The same authority that I have received from my Father, I will also give this person the morning star. Those of you with ears, listen to what the Spirit says to the assemblies. Now here's what I love about this conclusion. Okay, and we'll wrap up with this. He is talking to the center church of all the churches. The three churches that are in the center of that whole like picture um, are the ones that are kind of wishy-washy. They're kind of a little bit in, a little bit out, a little bit idolatrous, a little bit faithful. They're in that weird space in the middle. And instead of it just being straight pronouncements of like, man, you're failing, you're not doing enough, you could do more, To each of the churches, he commits promises and says, these things will be true of you. And specifically, two promises are given to this church, and I want to highlight a couple others within that section. So the two promises to this church, the first is that they are privileged to reign, okay? That they are privileged to reign. Now, I believe that this is referring to two different periods of time. One, I think it's referring to us in the present moment, meaning we are privileged, we're given the responsibility to rule and reign with God as co-creators. From the very beginning of time, in the book of Genesis, there is a statement that God said, I've given you the earth to rule and reign over it, to be creative with it, to usher life from it, to dream, be a part of building the kingdom here. That is our responsibility. It's our responsibility now. I also believe the text is referring to the idea that it will be our responsibility later. So when the kingdom comes in its complete fullness, we're not there yet, but when we get there, 
we will also rule and reign with God when the kingdom comes. What that exactly looks like, I don't know. Many will speculate, but I think it looks very similar to what it looks like now in that there will be cities and there will be lands and there will be people ruling and reigning and caring for the earth and loving one another and establishing community and all the things that he asked us to do in the beginning before we kind of screwed it up, he's going to ask us to do in the end, but in a perfect kingdom in which he rules and reigns at the center with us, right? That is what this is alluding to. So one of the promises is, if you remain faithful to me, if you endure in the midst of this, you'll reign with me. We'll actually carry out what we said from the very beginning. The second is that you will be given the morning star. Now that is not like a reference to a sunrise. It's a reference to a very clear description in the book of Revelation of who Jesus is. So in essence, what the text is saying is that if you do this, you will receive Jesus. Meaning the very inheritance as a son or daughter of the king, you will receive all that is a part of who Jesus is. So sacrifice, commitment, grace, love, and the entire kingdom is yours. What's interesting about this whole section is if you look at both of the churches on the two sides of this church, the statements are also this, that he will give us a new name, a new identity, a new purpose, that he will promise us white garments and names written in the book of life. All of those promises are promises to say that if we live into who he has asked us to be, if we walk out our faith in the ways that we are called to walk it out, that the promise is he is present with us. Same promise he gave us when he came is the same promise he gives us again, and he will be faithful to it till the end. Let's pray. God, there is a lot of complexity in this book. We know that. There's a lot to be said, and while I would love to talk for hours and, and think through all of the implications of how this is written and why it's written and what is trying to be communicated, we know at the very center of what you wanted to say to us today is that you see our actions, you value the things we do every single day. And what you want and desire of us is to follow you. What we want, or what you want, is for us to put you center, to have no other God before you, to worship no other thing, no safety and security, or politics, or money, or greed, or power, or any other thing that could stand in the way of us worshiping you and you alone. What you want is our worship, and that lived out in action. God, may we be a community that you praise. May we be a community that grows in love and faithfulness. And may we be a community that always centers on you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.